You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Wilson. Thanks, Dave. Oh, forgot my water bottle. Key essential part of a good sermon. All right. Hey, guys. Um, man. If y'all got a chance to, um, man, thank our, our ladies that are doing worship today. We have so much uh, talent from our ladies in this church. It is incredible, but they've done a great job leading us in worship this morning. So thank you, sisters, for doing that. And uh, man, it's my joy. I'm, I'm, uh, like I said, I'm Adam, one of the pastors. Uh, if you're new, we have two Adams, two pastors, and that's a requirement for uh, pastoral leadership at our church. Um, so ever since I was little, um, I grew up loving... Uh, I was like a World War II history nerd. I watched the History Channel nonstop, probably way too much. I like, I built the model airplanes, uh, read the books. Like I was infatuated with just this little period of history, and I was always so intrigued with how the war ended, with how World War II ended. And actually, this last summer marked the 75th anniversary of how that war ended, the dropping of uh, the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima in Japan. Uh, at the time, this was seen as this like really necessary uh, task to end World War, right? Let's drop this really big, bigger than average bomb. We'll kill some people, but we'll, the war will be over um, and around the world. War will be ceased. And uh, that's what happened. Um, in a flash, 70,000 Japanese military and citizens were killed um, that day. And at that point, it was thought that, hey, the, the, the damage is done. There's no more damage. But uh, as days and months and years passed by, all these morbid side effects kept oozing out of Hiroshima. This new thing that no one had ever heard of called radiation sickness kept taking people's lives days and weeks later. Every single pregnant woman within two kilometers of the bomb going off had a miscarriage or a child die in childbirth. Uh, for decades, all kinds of cancer just ran rampant through those people and for a lot of them, this social stigma stuck around that actually made them be treated as modern-day lepers in Japan. The web of death and pain just seemed to spread far beyond what anyone had originally anticipated before they dropped that bomb. And in our text in 2 Samuel, we're, we're really capping off a bigger section of our text that's describing the incalculable fallout that sin brings into this world, and namely into David's life. Uh, from chapter 9 up until where we are now in chapter 20, the author of 2 Samuel is, is playing, honestly, a really bleak picture of kind of a nuclear fallout at the result of one sin, sinful act in King David's life. What started as just a little lustful look exploded into massive destruction for decades to come in his life. Uh, if you're new to this story or new to the Strumman series, uh, King David, he slept with another man's wife, um, he killed his buddy who was uh, her husband, and then he deceived everyone about it for about a year until his boy Nathan came, called it out, um, he repent David repented, asked forgiveness from a holy and forgiving God, which he received, but after God grants forgiveness, this is what he says to David in 2 Samuel 12. He says, now therefore the sword is never gonna, will never depart your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So David's sin is forgiven before a holy God. That's good news. But the consequences of his sin are going to remain in his life for the rest of his life. And, and from that point on until our text that we're seeing this morning, the threads of sin and of sexual immorality and selfishness weave this bloody uh, and painful tapestry the nuclear fallout goes way further than anyone, including David, ever anticipated. And before you may think this seems kind of very dist a very distant reality or a very distant story, today we see these same threads through our own culture, our own lives, our own city. Many of you limped in here this morning. I didn't see anybody like physically limping, but I think metaphorically limped in here this morning. You've been beaten up or, or wearied by the world this week. You may have been discouraged by uh, some drama at work or an internal conflict at work. You might be plagued by anxieties or discouragement or depression that you're feeling this week. You might feel worn down by 
so many of the city's hardships that we have, that we grapple with here, whether it be poverty or drug addiction or crime. And some of you this morning just feel like, honestly, the punches just keep coming in your life and aren't stopping. And to be honest, I, I can, I'll jump in right there with you. I, I feel like that's where me and my family have been in this past season. Just the, the, kind of like the punches just keep coming and the heaviness keeps coming. I'm going to share more about that later. But this text is sobering, but I love it because it gives us a realistic view of sin and brokenness in the world that you and I experience every day. It's catastrophic. God's word is honest enough to give us an honest assessment of ourselves and the world around us. But the text also is going to encourage our hearts this morning because it's going to enlarge a view of our Messiah King. Because uh, sin's fallout, even though it's catastrophic, the King's mercy is overcome, is going to overcome. Despite the massive implications of sin around you, they're never going to outstrip the grace of King Jesus. And so the big idea I want to, I want to camp out on is sin's fallout is catastrophic, but the King's mercy overcomes. Since fallout is catastrophic, the king's mercy overcomes. And uh, those are just my two sections. We're going we're gonna to take the first half and just look at various parts of sin's fallout we see in this text. And then we're going to take the, the second section, the king's mercies, and that's going to be good news for us. Sound good? Great. <laughs> All right, sin's fallout. Uh, the first aspect of sin's fallout I want us to look at is it divides God's people divides God's people. Uh, the sermon last week, uh, it was a great sermon. If you haven't listened, you should go back and listen to it. Ends with like David's trajectory is just on the upswing, right? He, there's just been an insurrection, a rebellion. That's been put down. He's coming back uh, into his palace, into his kingdom with a parade taking him along the way and with champagne bottles, spraying champagne everywhere, it's glitter and lights. It's all that. I'm, I'm reading a little bit into the text, but um, it, it ended on a high note. And David's coming in like, ah, rest, finally. Uh, but right away, we see not so fast. This parade erupts into a shouting match. This is how chapter 19 of 2 Samuel ends, verses uh, 41 to 43. Says, then all the men of Israel came up to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men's with them? And the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Okay, so let me tell you what's going on here. There are two groups fighting. They're all supposed to be a part of this one nation, Israel, but they're broken down into two groups here. This Israel, which is the northern ten tribes, and Judah is this southern smaller tribe, but that's kind of Judah's or uh, David's home turf, his tribe. And so they're meant to be all one Israel, but they're splitting here. They're arguing. And if you step back, it kind of sounds like a couple of preschoolers fighting over their favorite toy, right? Uh, they're like, no, I had David first. Or, no, I got more time with David, so I get more time. And uh, if you've seen that scene before, it's uh, fairly common in my house. And um, the shouting match doesn't really end well. It says Judah won the argument, but it says um, they won the argument because their words were more cruel, is what the Hebrew says. So not a great way to win an argument. Um, my wife was amening that point. Actually, the last service, I don't know what that was about. So the tensions are high. There's bitterness. There's cruelty. The logs are on the fire. The gasoline is getting poured on. And then enter a match. His name is Sheba. Listen to the start of verse 20, or chapter 20. Now, there happened to be a worthless man. Uh, no moral guesswork about Sheba. Just he's worthless. He's a scoundrel. Um, sometimes the guesswork is there for us. It's not this time. His name was Sheba, the son of Betri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet, and he said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Betri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So spurred on by Sheba, the northern 
Ten tribes that I talked about split off from Judah, the southern kingdom that we talked about. Well, this one nation was split into two. King David just escaped his own son's rebellion and insurrection, and now he has another one right here. So out of the frying pan, into the fire, no rest for David. And the rest, the remainder of chapter 20, really tells this bloody, winding kind of trail of resolution of how Israel gets reunited, Sheba gets his head taken off, and there's a lot of kind of sketchy moves in between. Um, you can go back and read it for, your, for yourself later. Uh, but what I want to focus on is, is why this short division is such a big deal under David's rule. Because what we're seeing is we're seeing this wedge of disunity start that's going to actually just get tapped deeper and deeper and deeper into Israel, into the unity of God's people, until they split eventually for good. Uh, David's sin is what actually forms the crack where this wedge starts, that for decades it's going to uh, go deeper and deeper until we, go to fir- until we get to 1 Kings, which is generations later, and David's grandson becomes king. His name's Rehoboam, and right when he becomes king, these two groups that uh, split now and came back together, they split off for good, never to come back together again. Now, you're like, that's interesting. Why did you just go through ancient Israel monarch history lesson? Um, it's because God wants to warn us, and I want to show you, wants to warn us about division of God's people and the fallout from it. And to see why division is so serious, I want to look at what a unified Israel was supposed to do, the purpose of Israel. There's lots of places we could look for this, but uh, I love Isaiah 49.6, where it should be on the screen. He says, to Israel, this is God speaking to Israel, I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So Israel had one purpose. They had the person, the purpose was to be this hand of invitation, beckoning people in to know God. They, they themselves didn't have like the corner on the God market. It wasn't, hey, we have God and you guys stay out. It was saying, man, we're transformed by God and we want you to come in, all the nations in the whole world, and know him too. They were meant to display that worshiping Yahweh was meant to be like this awesome like family feast that you were enticed into and you were invited into. You found out you had an invitation. But when they're divided and infighting, it's like inviting someone to like go to the dentist or something. Like they're not going to go with you. No one wants to go jump in on that. And so as God's people, the church, we're actually invited into the same purpose. We kind of we kind of carry the torch of the same purpose for Israel. Christ's bride, God's people, we're meant to be a living display of those transformed by Jesus. And that same hand, inviting people in, inviting your neighbors, inviting your coworkers, inviting other people that we see to not only uh, hear the gospel, but see it and be invited in to know Jesus, right? And in Jesus' last prayer, I want to show you, this is so important to him. In his last prayer, what do you think was the, the one thing that Jesus prayed for when he was praying for the church? He prayed for one thing for the church. What do you think it was? I heard someone whisper, unity. <laughs> unity. It was unity. Why? So that when the world saw our unity, when it saw our mutual love for each other, our mutual laying down our lives, our mutual servitude for each other, people would look and say, man, there is something otherworldly going on. I haven't experienced or seen that before. There's something supernatural going on in that group of people that I don't quite understand, but I feel drawn to. There's no other explanation than that God is among them. This is one line of Jesus' prayer. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So church, our unity is living proof of a living, still alive Savior that died for the sins of the world. Uh, But conversely, our division hides, it veils Jesus and only shows the world, natural people with just natural squabbles, right? Calvin says, uh, nothing's more inconsistent in Christians than to be at variance among themselves. What he's saying is division diminishes God's glory. And it usually doesn't happen overnight. In marriages and friendships in the church, it passes over, progresses over time. When I, uh, when I was a kid, I hated chores. Uh, you probably did too. Uh, but I loved one chore. It was splitting wood. It was so fun. Um, and so, you know, when I was 13, I'd go out and you'd pick up this like big oak log. You'd pick it up. You'd take it over to, you know, the splitting, the splitting log. And it's this massive 
oak log, and you're like, how do you, the first time I was learning, how do you split this thing in two? This thing is massive, it's hard, I don't even know how you start. And how you start is you have just a little piece of metal called a wedge. And how you start is not by just hacking away, but you just take this wedge and you just place it in the smallest crack in the middle. And then you take a maul and you just, you don't go to town, you just, you tap it. Tap, just goes a little further. Tap, a little bit further. Until you just tap on this thing until, and then you can start getting a little harder, but you tap on this wedge until what was a small crack all of a sudden is this huge divide. And then you get to the point where it's like, okay, I can get one more whack at this thing. And you just do one last hit, the log splits, you feel like a stud, and you keep going. Um, and I was thinking about that because that's exactly how division happens um, in our relationships or in the church. They just start with a small crack because this, this big log with something impenetrable was, was just split and divided by this little wedge, this little thing. And it started with just a little crack. And for us, that can be just a sarcastic comment, a misinterpreted action, and that wedge is placed. And going unaddressed, that wedge will just go deeper and deeper. A passive-aggressive comment that you gave or didn't address, just tap it in a little more. Leaving a feeling of bitterness or hurt unaddressed, not talking about it, tap just a little deeper. A moment of prayer gossip or, or venting, tap, just tap in a little more. Until all of a sudden, this little crack that seemed like nothing is this huge divide in your relationship. And then before you know it, there's one, it's the relationship is so fragile, the relationship is so divided, all you need to do is one more hit, and it's, it's, it's in two. You're no longer one. And when you leave bitterness and hurt and sin unaddressed, you're allowing Satan's wedge to do its work. Satan loves seeing this happen because it mars the gospel and it convinces us that we're the enemy of each other instead of him being the enemy. Israel's witness to Yahweh was, was marred and muddied here and to the degree that disunity infects our friendships, our marriages, and our church, the gospel is going to be veiled to us and to the outside world. And division is a radioactive effect of sin. So a couple quick invitations before we move on to the next fallout of sin. It's really simple, uh, but air things out quickly. Air things out quickly. When you're wrong, when you have bitterness, when you have jealousy, we usually do one or two things. We, we internalize it, and we're like, oh, I'm, I'm holy enough to kind of work this out inside. Like, I, can, I don't need to tell anybody about it. I don't need to tell that person that I felt hurt or wronged. Uh, I'll just work that out. I'm holy enough. I'm gracious enough. And, um, and we just think we can just get rid of it. The other thing you do is uh, we expect the other person to know they hurt us, and so we wait for them to come talk to us about it. And we won't talk to them until they know and come talk to us about it. But if you leave it unaddressed, it's actually, it's actually contributing to the disunity and distorting the gospel. I love uh, this example. I saw this played out this week in my boy uh, David Whistle uh, here in the front row. Um, so Adam, uh, Pastor Adam and I have a meeting on, uh, on Tuesdays and that we have every week, and David just strolls into the office and uh, says, hey, I just need to talk to you guys about something from Sunday. Like, there's just a couple things you did and, and said that just made me feel like you're not for me, and we're just, I've been struggling with in my heart. And uh, man, we were just so encouraged to hear that. Uh, and why were we encouraged? Because he was airing things out quickly. And we like, we hugged it out. It was good. Like, it didn't take too long, and uh, we're good now, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're good. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what I would do if he said no. <laughs> but I loved it. It was so encouraging to us because he aired it out quickly. And honestly, if he would have not said anything, that just would have been a wedge for Satan to tap in. The next time we did the same thing, tap it in. The next time something went unaddressed, just tap it in until David would have honestly been really struggling with us in a really hard way if he would have just left it to himself. And so, man, brother, encouraged by your honesty and airing that out quickly. And I know, I know, I know so many of you here sitting have some area of like you feel wronged by someone, you're struggling with bitterness towards someone, uh, you're struggling with unforgiveness, and it's unaddressed. You haven't addressed it with that person. And with all the force and gusto and invitational woo I can muster, would you, would you address that today? 
Like, would you air it out today? Would you confess it today? Because the longer you leave it unaddressed, the longer you leave Satan the opportunity to divide that relationship and mar the gospel that our world needs to see. And some of you um, may be like, hey, I actually don't think I have any bitterness against anyone right now or unforgiveness. And that, that's, that's great. I want to praise God with you on that. I got an action step for you. Um, address divisiveness in others. Address divisiveness in others. This is a family community project. Uh, it's not just you. So when you come across bitterness or divisiveness in others, it's an invitation for you to call it out humbly and help it heal, help heal it. It's loving to others and it helps the gospel go out in the world. So if you hear gossip or slander against a brother and sister in Christ, it's a great time to step in and humbly say, hey, I actually don't think that's really in line with the gospel and with loving them well. Or if you come across kind of some passive-aggressive frustration towards a leader, um, you could encourage them or a pastor. Encourage them, hey, I think you should go talk to them about that. I don't think it's okay to just keep spreading and keep just kind of venting. And and we need to do this, friends, because unity does not passively occur. It only happens with great intentionality. If you're not actively striving to build unity and you're just kind of passively sitting by, you are allowing disunity to reign and go forth. And friends, division distorts the gospel. We so, our, our city and ourselves so badly need to see and experience. So let's commit together, won't we? To, to root out wedges of divisiveness for our good and enjoyment and for Christ's glory. That's fallout one, number one. Fallout number two, sin does collateral damage. Sin does collateral damage. It's, uh, it's really common today, and I follow this too, to think that I can insulate the people around me, especially people I love, to the consequences of my sin or my actions. That I can put a fence around it or a border wall around it. This text shows us this is impossible. The effects of sin will wound and maim innocent bystanders. Uh, in verse 3 we, of chapter 20, we come across uh, what seems like kind of a random detail. And to be honest, I read the first couple of times I read this passage, I was like, huh, that's weird. Uh, you know, uh, but God is really... Um, has a lot to say through it. So I want, I want to read uh, verse 30, or verse 3 for you in chapter 20. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them, uh, a.k.a. did not sleep with them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. I want to show you why this is one of the saddest parts of this whole chapter. This passage is telling us about the first thing King David does when he gets home. He busts open the doors to the palace. He's home. And back, back in the day when um, King David was run out of his palace by his son, his son took these 10 women who were his concubines to care for his house. And if you're new to the Bible, um, the Bible does not condone or encourage concubines or polygamy. Um, David here is actually following the way of the world, not the way of God and how he's doing this. Uh, But these women became innocent collateral damage in this insurrection of David's son, Absalom. When Absalom came into David's kingdom, drove his dad out, one of the first things he did was he took these 10 women, he took them to the roof of the palace, and he slept with each one of them, forcing them to. They were publicly used, publicly abused for political gain. It was disgusting. And now Absalom's gone, David gets back, but to David, these women now are untouchable. They are damaged goods. And the commentator, uh, W.G. Blakey, really captures the sadness here well. I want to read it to you. The only way of disposing them, these women, was to put them in ward, to shut them up in confinement, to wear out the rest of their lives in a dreary, joyless widowhood. All joy and brightness was thus taken out of their lives, and personal freedom was denied them. They were doomed for no fault of theirs to the weary lot of captives cursing the day, probably when their beauty had brought them to the palace and wishing that they could exchange lots with the humblest of their sisters that breathed the air of freedom. These were women that David meant to protect, care for, but now he just locks them away, out of sight, out of mind. And honestly, I I, I drill in on this one because This whole section of scripture is just scattered with stories of fallout from sin. And that's one example. 
Uh, there's lots of others throughout that we've seen, if you've been with us through this series, like David's child dying, one of his friends, Uriah, being murdered by him, uh, his daughter Tamar being raped and blamed for it without justice, another one of David's sons being murdered, his son Absalom, um, that relationship being ruined, uh, multiple insurrections, Israel in conflict and division, all, all these things, that's not an ex- exhaustive list either. either. There's more. I feel like, yeah, I read this and, I'm, and I look at the world, I'm like, I feel like the collateral damage of sin is like endless contact tracing. Um, I have been called a couple times by the contact tracers uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, uh, you know, you guys maybe have as well. Someone gets a you know, COVID-19 positive test and the um, contract tracers call them up and, hey, what's, you know, who did you come in contact with? And they give them, you know, 15 names. And then those 15 people get all calls from the contact tracer. Hey, you had, you know, play the phone. Hey, you had an exposure to COVID-19. You've been, you're collateral damage to COVID-19. You need to quarantine, you need to test it, and you need to give me a list of the people you saw. So I give them like 15 names. They call those 15 people. So it's like pretty soon it gets pretty out of control, right? The contact tracers are calling a lot of people who, have, who are in a sense like collateral damage from just one COVID-19 positive test. Um, and that's kind of what we see here in the fallout of the collateral damage of sin, in the text, that it's just, you can't put a fence around it. You can't wall it in. And all too often, unfortunately, this text is a great example that the fallout and collateral damage from sin actually occurs in the lives of women and children. Because when sin reigns in the lives of men, so often women and children take the fallout. Whether it's a child that's wounded for life under a verbal abuse of a, of a dad or a wife and child that are left by a husband for a better fit, or women that are trafficked in response to uh, the rich, uh, w- the whims of lustful rich men. And many of you sitting here feel like, man, I'm, I've just been hit by a truck of collateral damage in this season of my life. At no fault of your own, you've been wronged or taken advantage of by someone probably close to you. And many of you are sitting out and limping in because of that. And if that's you, then our, our heart goes out to you. I just want to say, I, we are, and I am so sorry that, that is the case. And, and I'm excited to get to our next section of, of the sermon here because, uh, in a minute here, because the King's mercies, I think, has a lot to offer you. But there's one more thing I I'll just want to understand from this section or see from the section is, is just this. Your sin will have collateral damage. Whether it's known or hidden, whether it's big or small, whether it's public or private, it will wound others and most often the ones you love the most. Every sin has a victim. This is like, uh, reminds me of a time where I, the last church I worked at, I had a, um, a spouse uh, come to me and say, hey, uh, I'm looking at divorce. How can I get divorced and it not affect my kids negatively? And if you understand that statement, that's like you coming to me and being like, hey, how can I babysit Selah and get her to bed at night, and then, but give her five shots of espresso beforehand? It's like, not happening. That, that's impossible. That's not a reality that is even considerable. The deception of sin is telling us that you'll provide satisfaction at little cost, just a moment of pleasure, a feeling of security, a taste of power with little cost. But what we're going to find is that the cost, and what you found in your life already, you already know this, that the cost is heavy. Because sin takes us so much further than we want to go. And its reach is so far greater than we could have ever imagined. And friends, I, I know this is a, a sober text, sober points, in a sober, but it's a loving warning from a tender God. He, he doesn't want us to be deceived by sin. He doesn't want us to experience the fallout from disobeying him or from sin because he loves us. And you might be someone here that's considering temptation to step out of God's will or making your own way. It might be an unhealthy romance or a shady move at work or just keeping sin in the dark and keeping it secret. And I just want to invite you just to to consider David's life, to look at the fallout. The cost is so much more than you want to pay. I guarantee you. The fallout from sin means division that threatens to mar the gospel of God's people, and it means collateral damage is everywhere, whether it's ours or whether it's someone else we've been affected by. 
And this is a bleak picture, but it's an honest one. And I love the honesty of the Bible because what the world often does is it takes the brokenness and the struggles in this world and it tends to minimize them and tell you it's not that bad. Or the things that have been done to you, hey, you can get over it. That's okay. It's not so bad. And that's, to be honest, like that's not really what we need. The scriptures give us a sobering picture to show us the magnitude of the matchless grace that we have to meet us in Jesus. And this text is meant to put us on our knees and say, God, we need help. And we have a a king, as we cry for help, that's ready to meet us. And that's what I want to look at for the rest of the sermon is the king's mercies. Um, David read chapter 21, and I want to focus in on, on that chapter for this last section. The first mercy we see is that the king atones for sin. The king atones for sin. So as we come to chapter 21, we're going to find Israel in dire need. They're in a famine for three years. For an agricultural society, that's a big deal. Uh, I was um, hanging with a buddy, a tenor of ours, who is uh, from Ghana, and he was telling me about a summer in which, or a, a year in which the wet season basically just skipped, did not happen. He said it just devastated their company, or their, um, <clears throat> their uh, company, country. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, so three years of famine, catastrophic. So David says, after three years of famine, he says, man, huh, I wonder if God has like, something to do with this that I need to figure out here. And so he seeks God, and lo and behold, God's using the drought as kind of like an exclamation point, as a, as a check engine light to look under the hood of fallout from sin. And uh, actually not uh, his sin, but actually sin and fallout from sin of David's predecessor, Saul, King Saul, who's dead at this time. This is what uh, verse, verse 1 says in chapter 21, which you heard David say and read. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There's blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So, super brief history lesson on the Gibeonites, what's going on here. Back in Joshua 9, the nation of Israel is coming to take the land that God has given them. He is giving it to them as their inheritance, as part of his promise. And this people, the Gibeonites, come to Israel and say, hey, we'd love to live and we'd love for you to protect us. Would you do that? Can we covenant and agree forever to that promise? And Israel does. They promise, they covenant before God and say, hey, we're going to protect you and care for you. Uh, We won't kill you. So Saul comes along a couple generations later, and he tries to kill off these people. He's saying, I'm the first king of Israel. I need to come in and show my zeal and my power and my might and my good looks. He he was a good-looking king. Um, and, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wipe these people out. I'm going to show them what's up. And so he violated this oath that uh, was made before Yahweh. And so violating an oath in Yahweh's way, it discredited his reputation. It says, it tells the world Yahweh can't be depended on. And that his name can't be trusted. And David steps in as a mediator between sinful Saul and holy God. And he asks the Gibeonites this question. In verse 3, he says, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Uh, real quick, making atonement means securing forgiveness, making amends for something that uh, was done, or a wrong that was done. And this is the Gibeonites' answer. They say, this is how you can secure forgiveness. This is how you can make it right, David. The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So Saul violated this covenant, defamed Yahweh's name, but he's not around to pay for it. So they say, hey, how about seven of his grandkids? They can stand in. There are these covenant breaker, kind of surrogate stand-ins to be punished in Saul's place. So David grants the request. They're hung, they're killed. There's like no detail here, but if you just sit on this for a second, this is a horrific scene. Seven men snatched from their home, taken from their families, hung for something that was committed before they were even alive, probably, by a distant relative. Uh, This is not the story you find in the kids' books, is it? It's It's heartbreaking, it's sad, it's sobering. In verse 14, God, he responds to the bloody payment of sin. The debt's paid. The famine ends. David, the Messiah king, he makes atonement for sin on behalf of Israel. This story is setting up a really interesting standard 
for us. Because, and it creates a problem for us. Because what about the next time a covenant is broken? What, what about the next time a people is wronged? Does this gruesome scene of atonement just play out over and over and over again in our world? We've already established the tragic fall of sin and the blood that's on our hands and the blood that's on everyone else's hands in this world. So, so much so that Genesis 3 and Romans, uh, Romans 8 tell us that the land, all of creation, is actually cursed and under the weight of sin is groaning to break free of all just the fallout from sin that we have put on it. Because friends, you know, the sin keeps happening. Covenants keep getting broken. We keep wronging our modern-day Gibeonites for our own selfish ends. And we dishonor the name of God to gain our own reputation like Saul does. And according to the standard we see here in the text, we should be with those seven. We should be hung for our sin. But we have hope here this morning because a better king stepped in. A better Messiah king than David. Jesus stepped in to make atonement like David did, only this time he didn't offer somebody else up to pay for it. He said, you know what, I am going to offer myself to be hung on a tree. Jesus saw the nuclear waste that was the fallout from sin, and he had compassion. He didn't run away. The one person to ever live that didn't actually contribute to the mess came in and said, I'm going to pay for it all, even though I had nothing to do with that fallout and that nuclear wasteland. And he took the punishment. He placed himself as our surrogate stand-in, like these seven grandkids. The full wrath of God was poured out and satisfied on Jesus for your forgiveness, friend. I love how Romans 5, verses 6 through 9 say it. Paul says, For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Paul's saying, hey, there's, if there's a really good person out there, someone might die for him. There might be an off chance someone might do it. He's like, but don't put yourself in. You're not that guy. You're not that girl. Like, you're the sinner in the story. Christ died for you when you were a mess. I, uh, when I think about atonement, I, I think about uh, a sorts of atonement story in my life. I, um, when I was in high school, it's a sophomore in high school, got my first car. It was a 94 Ford Explorer, four-wheel drive, red Old Carol, that's what I called her. And uh, I took this girl to 230,000 miles, man. Like, we, yeah. Uh, and so I got this car. I'm sophomore in you know, high school, just starting to drive. And, man, we, we love to go out mudding, like off-roading. We love to go out mudding is what we called it. And uh, there was this pristine field near my house, like perfect. It was like me and my friends drove by. And we're like, yo, we need to go mudding there tonight. Like, we are going to go tonight. So it's raining, we go to this field, and man, we are having the time of our life. We are like doing donuts, we're flinging mud everywhere, we're like rolling through these huge like puddles, and um, we're, you know, for an hour, and then we leave, and don't think anything about it, it's dark, can't really see what's going on. And we drive back by in the morning, and this pristine field is a mess. It looks awful. And come to find out, it's actually like a practice field for, for a couple sports teams and stuff, and like, it was not great. So... <clears throat> So not great, not great. So and somehow, so we got a call that day. I got a call from my buddy and like, hey, they found out that it was us and the owners of the field. And they're um, considering pressing charges uh, and you need to pay for the damages. You need to pay for the field to be like resodded. And, re and they were like, this is how much. It was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. I'm a sophomore in high school. I have 30 bucks to my name. And that's like, like going to fill up the gas tank next week. That's all I got, you know. So I get this call and I just like sink in the chair from just the weight put on me. And for days, I am just anxious. I'm a mess. I do not know what is going to happen and how I'm going to pay this debt that I have, right? And um, I had a miserable few days. I didn't tell my parents. So anyone didn't find out. No one knew. And out of the blue, my same friend calls me and says, hey, guess what? Someone paid for the damages. Like, I don't even know who it was, but someone came in and paid for that field to get, like, redone and remade and resodded and all the stuff they had to do. And do you know how I responded? I leaped out of the chair. The weight was, like, taken off of me. I was, like, dancing around. My parents didn't even know why. 
Um, but I was, the weight had been lifted. I was just rejoicing. And you know, the other thing too, aside from just being excited, happy, thankful, the weight lifted, is I was telling everyone about the mess I made. I was like, man, you guys, like, I was telling my friends, I told my parents, like, you guys got to check out this huge mess I made and, like, how it got redeemed, right? Like, I, this, I was an idiot, this, I uh, made this field, and I told them the whole story. And it was beautiful because whoever paid this debt all of a sudden made my muddy mess into this, like, redemptive story that I was just excited to tell everybody about, right? And that's kind of how I think that we really respond to atonement as well. We rejoice. The atonement sets our spirits soaring. Because, friends, God came in and, in a sense, and gave us this green, pristine field to, to nurture, to care for, to store it. And we had a great time instead of caring for it. We went in the field. We did donuts. We flung mud everywhere. And we had a great time doing it in our sin. And we had the same debt standing against us. We were a high school with $30 owing thousands. No way to pay it. And I love it because what Jesus does is he comes up next to us and says, man, whew, that's a hot mess. That's even more expensive than you know. But at the same time, he says, you know, you can't pay that debt, but I will pay it for you. At all, my own cost, own expense to myself, I will pay that debt for you so you can be free to rejoice. Your debt is cleared. You owe nothing. And so we rejoice. Our spirits are soaring. The, the uh, eternal debt is paid for us, and that can't be changed. And we get to acknowledge our mess. We can say, man, can you believe how much of a mess I was and what Jesus paid for? Like, we don't have to minimize our messes in our life. We don't have to try to hide them from anyone. We just say, man, Jesus' grace is so big, it cleaned up even that. It paid for even that. And that's how we can worship together. That's how the gospel just gets bigger and bigger for us. Your sinful, muddy mess, it's been transformed by Jesus to be this story of grace that we get to just share and shout from the rooftops. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian or, or you haven't uh, really, or you're not walking with Jesus right now, this is an invitation for you to acknowledge your mess, to turn to the endless grace of Jesus, to trust in him with all your life and rejoice. Have the weight taken off. And we've all been there. We all have had the weight of sin on our shoulders and all have trusted in Jesus uh, that, are, that are here, that know him, and had that price paid for a muddy, jacked-up field. So as we uh, consider the fallout of sin, friends, this Jesus gives us so much hope here. The consequences of sin, we will experience them, but they don't have the final word. The blood of Jesus has the final word on your life if you're in him. Uh, secondly, the king's mercies they keep us in safety. They keep us in safety. Verse 7, plot kind of right in the middle of this story is, is another detail that can be easily overlooked. Listen to verse 7, chapter 21. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Good old Mephibosheth. Okay, so if you guys have been with us for a little bit, this guy just like randomly pops up different places throughout our series. Um, this dude just keeps popping up as this radical recipient of David's grace again and again and again. And many times the culture was telling and circumstances were telling David, David, you need to kill Mephibosheth. He's part of Saul's crew, the, um, the monarchy before you. Like, you just, you need to get rid of this guy. But once again, David goes out of his way at own cost to himself to protect Mephibosheth. So he, he should have been up with these seven guys getting hung because he's one of Saul's grandkids. Why is he spared? It's because David, the Messiah King in this story, is keeping the covenant that he made decades ago to protect Mephibosheth. David's covenant keeping here is actually contrasted with Saul's covenant breaking and what David's covenant has done is it has drawn a circle of covenant safety around Mephibosheth that won't be broken. And if you've trusted in Jesus, if he has atoned for your sin, it's exactly what he does for you. He draws this covenant love circle around you of protection that can't be broken. You can rest secure. You will get bruised up from the brokenness in this world, but he'll keep you to the end. And there's a lot of security in that. This is what he says in John 10, this is what Jesus says in John 10. 
I give them eternal life, those in him, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So amongst the fall of sin, friends, the, the reigning king, the power of God has surrounded you with his love and his protection. He is utterly committed to your eternal safety. And, and this is why we need to keep this good news in front of our face, because this isn't just like, oh, that's good someday, but doesn't really help me now. The, the, the blood of Christ gives you the final word of your future, that you will be with him for eternity, so you will be with him now. And the reality that Christ will endure us to the end gives us the endurance, the encouragement to endure through struggles today. Last mercy I want to look at is the king sympathizes with you. The king sympathizes with you. I'm going to take a little detour uh, away from our second Samuel text. I think there's a lot, of, a lot of encouragement offered in that story, but there's something even more, I think, amidst the fallout of sin that I, I want to encourage you in and that I have just been encouraged in. And uh, if I'm being honest with you, man, I, I mentioned earlier, but yeah, this, for me and my family, this has been just an incredibly like, heavy and weary season uh, over our life. And I, I've just been praying to God, God, I, I need you to encourage me. Show me what grace there is to have in this season because I need it. We've had uh, lots of people in our vicinity, lots of friends and family uh, uh, fall out of ministry because of sin. Um, we've been closely interacting with a lot of broken marriages. Uh, we've been seeing, I, I have been seeing, well, we, me, my family has too, uh, the, the effects of my own shortcomings and insecurities that they have on, on my wife and on my kids. Um, not too long ago, we experienced uh, the third miscarriage we've had in, in just as many years. And, and it's a great joy of mine, but also a, a weighty thing to walk through the burdens that many of you are going through. And as I, I look at the fallout, man, I, I can rejoice that sin is atoned for I take confidence that Christ is going to keep me to the end. And man, I need that. <laughs> I need to remember that. It's such good news. But he gives even more grace in the struggle. I want to share a passage with you. He's really encouraged me in. It's uh, Hebrews 4.15. This is what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is a familiar verse, but I just want to unpack it just for a minute together. We usually get the feeling that God is with us when life is going great. The bank account's looking healthy, got that new job, got that new relationship. Hashtag too blessed to be stressed, right? God is with, yeah, God is so near. This text is telling us the opposite. It says God is most present, he's most sympathizing, he is most near when you're feeling weak, when you're feeling dependent, when you're feeling discouraged. The word sympathize here, it, it's a compound two-part word. It's two simple words. It means with and suffer. So simply put, it means Jesus suffers with you. He suffers with us. I love this quote from Gentle and Lowly, a great book that many of you have been reading. It says, uh, Daniel Rutland says this, it's not only that Jesus can relieve us our troubles, like the doctor prescribing medicine, it also is that before any relief comes, he's with us in our troubles, like a doctor who has endured the same disease. My friends, in your pain, Jesus is pained. In your suffering, he feels the suffering as if it were his own. So with some of those just hard things that I listed for myself, when his heart breaks, Jesus' heart breaks with, with mine as I see friends and family fall to sin. He sheds tears with me over struggling and broken marriages. He, he mourns my own slowness to believe the gospel in my life. He weeps with me over our lost child. He groans with me as I share burdens with, with many of you. Jesus co-suffers with you today. He laments with you. He grieves with you. He weeps with you. And that's exactly what we need, right? I, I think when you're going to do something hard, you don't want like, like this like super chipper friend to come and be like, hey, man, it's okay. Say the exact right things, and everything's just like zapped back to the way it was. No. 
You want someone to come in and suffer with you, grieve with you, put their arm around you, cry with you. That's the friend we need. And that's the friend that Jesus is, that Jesus is that friend in your suffering closer than anyone else could be. And uh, for those of you in, in weary seasons and hard seasons, man, I pray that would be a comfort to you today. It's been a comfort to me uh, as you're going through those trials. Because the nuclear fallout from sin and that in our own life and in others, it, it is truly massive. In this life, we're not going to escape the consequences from sin in our own life or that of others. But our king has stepped in. He gives us all the mercy we need. He's atoned our sin so that we'll be with him forever. He secures us to the finish line so we will make it. You'll make it if you're in him. And he suffers with us as a near friend, the great high priest. As we uh, prepare to take communion, as the worship band comes up, let's remember those things. Let's give him our worship. It's due his name. Let's pray together. Man, Father, I'm just so thankful for this time. I am thankful for a sobering picture of our sin. Uh, I confess my own <laughs> love of minimization of sin. I, I love to minimize sin. And would you show us that when we do that, we are minimizing the gospel. We're minimizing Jesus. Would we be free, those of us that have experienced atonement in Christ, that have our sins forgiven in Christ, that are eternally secured in Christ, God, I pray we would minimize sin. I pray that we would brag on your redemptive story in our life. And Father, I pray for this church. I pray for and a unification of our body. Um, pray that we would be unified in the gospel. Pray that you would protect against division. I pray that for people sitting here that are harboring bitterness or unforgiveness or hurt, that they've been wronged by somebody. God, help them to air that out today. And God, I pray that the schemes of the enemy that seeks to divide your church and mar the gospel would be done away with in Jesus' name today. And God, I pray that we would, our spirits would soar. I pray that a sober view of sin would not discourage us, but it would move us to look at you, to lean on you, to rejoice in you, to remember you in the hard times. And would our church be a witness that, man, just because things are broken and hard does not mean that our joy is taken because our identity is in you. Now, I pray for anyone here that hasn't trusted in you for the atonement of their sin, for the forgiveness of their sin. God, show them the beauty of Christ. Would our church be a feast of invitation? And even as we take the table now, will we see the feast we're invited into to know Christ for all eternity? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.